listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Tenor Johann Bota is backstage at Lyric. I love my business. I love my job. I love to sing, and I love to be on the stage, and I love to entertain people. And that brings out of me the urge to be as best as I can, and to you know. And then I think from there comes this concentration that you have to work with. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. Previously at Lyric Opera, South African tenor Johann Bota starred in La Gioconda, Pagliacci, and Turandot. Now he's making his eagerly awaited return to the company in a role that's especially closely associated with him, Wagner's Lohengrin. Previously, he sung the role at the Metropolitan Opera, the Vienna Staatsoper, Covent Garden, many other houses, and he's also sung it on a hugely acclaimed recording. Recently, my colleague from the Lyric Broadcast, George Preston, sat down with Mr. Bota to speak in detail about Lohengrin. Before we get to that conversation, here's the story of the opera. In 10th century Antwerp, Elsa of Brabant, a virtuous young noblewoman, is accused of having murdered her brother, young Gottfried, Duke of Brabant, who has disappeared. She longs for a knight to come to defend her. A knight appears in a boat drawn by a swan. He pledges to protect Elsa and to marry her. He asks only that she never ask his name or his origin. Suspicions regarding the knight are awakened in Elsa by Telramund, Count of Brabant. He's regent and Gottfried's guardian. He craves the dukedom for himself. And his scheming wife, Ortrud, also contributes to creating that suspicion and doubt in Elsa's mind. On her wedding night, Elsa's curiosity overcomes her, and she asks the forbidden questions. Telramund rushes into the marriage chamber, but the knight kills him. Before the people of Antwerp, he reveals that he comes from Monsalvat, and that he is Lohengrin, the son of Parsifal. The swan is revealed as Gottfried, who had previously been transformed by Ortrud's magic. A dove flies down to draw Lohengrin away in the boat as the grief-stricken Elsa collapses. Now, on to the interview with Lyric Opera's Lohengrin, tenor Johann Bota. I hope you enjoy it. Vocally, you have to build up your stamina. You have to build your instrument and build your technique so yeah. that you're able simply physically to get through roles like this. Um, and it's astonishing that you're able to do that and remain so vocally fresh. But what about the musical 
concentration. How do you build that up? Well, you know, uh, uh, first of all, uh, in that sense, um, you know, I feel like you have to be schizophrenic because you have to think of uh, seven things at one point uh, during the whole show. And I think it is to split your, not only your mind, but to split your whole being up in several parts in doing that. Basically, the whole thing is about training. If you have the right people and you train the right way and uh, take your time with these pieces, you will end up being able to sing it the way I'm singing it. I'm still working with a singing teacher on basically all of my repertoire that I'm singing. To achieve that, you know, that goal of concentrating and just do it. And then, of course, you know, I just enjoy singing. That's the most um, um, uh, important thing for me to do. I love my business. I love my job. I love to sing. And I love to be on the stage. And I love to entertain people. And that brings out of me the urge to be as best as I can. And to, you know, and then I think from there comes this concentration that you have to work with. And, of course, as I said, training. Now, since you're the training the work that you're doing with your teacher is obviously so successful. Do you want to give this teacher a shout-out? Who is this person, and, and how long have you been working with them? I was lucky in my life to have three very good teachers. My first teacher was uh, Jarmila Tallinger. Uh, she taught me the basics. And the second teacher I worked with was uh, Eric Müller uh, in uh, South Africa. The, the, those two people have really uh, established my singing technique as it is. The third woman, the third person I'm working is a woman in Berlin, uh, Irmgard Hartmann Dreschler. Uh, she started a, f- uh, a long, t- uh, you know, not long time, but after the Second World War. Uh, a lot of her colleagues came to her and said, you know, uh, like Pia Lorenga would come and said, you know, Ira, I've got a problem. How can I fix it? And that's how she discovered her ability of teaching young uh, uh, teaching singers and um, I love to work with her with Ira uh, you know I can phone her now and I said uh, I've got a problem here with my I, I don't have can't get through that part of the register and stuff and she will immediately tells me which uh, exercises to do and for that reason I also have a pianist uh, coach that's traveling with me everywhere I go Brenda Ryan and uh, she will phone uh, also to my to my coach and said, "Listen, do this. Listen for this. And if you hear this, you do this exercise. It goes this way. You do this exercise." And I think that's one of the uh, big things that we have: this trust and uh, working with this woman. Now, um, you said you started <coughs> to get training very early on. Yes. In South Africa. What was the operatic climate like when you were growing up in South Africa? When did you first encounter this art form and think this is something you might like to do and then discover you had this rather extraordinary gift? Well, I discovered opera basically at a very young age. My dad dad and my grandfather, uh, I grew up on a big farm. And my grandfather and my dad was always listening to the opera on... Then was uh, these little uh, gramophones that you have to wound up, right? Uh-huh. That you have to put the needle in and it pull. And it was our constant job to wound up the thing. And then I th- remember my grandfather bought them 
the first real record player when that came out, you know, the first sound system. And uh, they were listening to the opera, and, you know, of course, I was, as a five-year-old kid, I was always singing with. I mean, his favorite opera that he listened to was Richard Taka's uh, uh, And Anamorphos La Traviata. And... Uh, he was listening to that, and I was singing with both Richard Tucker and Anamorfo the whole piece through. I mean, that was the first opera. I, I, I can't remember the words, but I know their music from backwards to forward, you know. And uh, then one day, our reverend came to our house uh, uh, for a visit, and his wife told my mom, you know, you should let that kid sing because listen to his voice. It's a very good voice. And then she introduced me to my first singing teacher, and I was 10 at that time, and then I started singing lessons with her. At age 10? At age 10, yes. Certainly her voice hadn't changed at that point. No, it hadn't. I was a very high boy soprano. I sang the Queen of the Night aria for her, which a lot of sopranos hated me for. <laughs> I, came, I was 11 when I did my first singing competition, and one of our renowned uh, South African Queen, Queen of the Nights was the judge, and she was so pissed off when I started singing the Queen of the Night aria that she really was. <laughs> I think that was the only reason why she didn't give me the, the first prize. <laughs> and later I met up with her and said, remember that boy who sang the Queen of the Night aria? It's me now. <laughs> and she'd go like, I hated you for that. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> Recently, I started watching the uh, HD transmission. I have it recorded at home on DVR. I haven't watched the whole opera yet of Verdi's Aida, yeah. where you sing Radames. Yeah. And, of course, stepping out on stage and having a little exchange with Ramfis and then having yeah. to sing Celeste Aida... Right off the bat, that's got to be one of the most daunting. That's the, one entrances. of the hardest things for every tenor in the world. I mean, you go out and, you know, that's one thing that if you go up to the heaven, you will ask Verdi, why? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it's so exposed. It's so exposed, the whole aria. And, you know, if you make a huge mistake in the aria, then the people are going to remember you for the rest of the evening. If not, if you sing it good, by the end of the evening, he's only standing there. It's the same with Don Carlos. You sing the magical aria, and then after you stand there for five or four hours or three hours of singing, and, you know, the bassist takes home the whole thing. I mean, uh, the two basses and the two women. The tenor is always in the bloody way. He's always standing there or going, on. Ah, he's like a small kid. Just kick him out. <laughs> well, but, one, one you know, thing you do at the end of Celeste Aida... You actually sing the dynamics yes. as written. Very, most people don't really understand that that last B-flat in Celeste Aida... Is written in, in four-piece. Right, because so few tenors have been able to do that. I can think of two great tenors who were able to do something like that. Yeah. Uh, Corelli was able to do a nice diminuendo yeah. on recording at any rate. And John Vickers was able to do a kind of a nice mix-up there. Nikolai Gedda also. Nikolai Gedda. Yeah. It is, you know, it is... I don't know why. I've got... I'm, perhaps I'm crazy. I don't know. Perhaps I am. I don't know. Uh, but that's my challenge in life to see, because I can do it. 
that became one of my challenges. I mean, I was working with my singing teacher on Pagliacci and uh, my third singing teacher, Frau Hartmann. And uh, halfway through the whole aria, she came up to me and she said, why are you screaming at me? And I go like, hang on, I haven't screamed, I have sing. She said, no, you have screamed at me. Come and have a look here. You know, it's written pianissimo, pianissimo. The only point where you really go out, where it's a high point, is ridi uh, pagliaccio. That's the only part that's it's forte. She said, you're giving yourself away already. Why don't you do the dynamics? You can do it. What well, you of all people can do the dynamics. And she started pounding me uh, and rehearsed me until I could do it. And I'm very thankful for that because not only that, you know, you, you discover how the music should have sound, all right? What the maestro, the composer have had in his, in his head. And uh, I've done it with Tannhäuser. I've done it with uh, Meistersinger. I've done it with, you know, we've uh, done a recording in Vienna with Master Tillemann. Uh, we, my age, my, <laughs> my coach and I were having a little bit of a discussion about how to sing the Schusterstube. And I got annoyed with it and I just walked out on stage and she said to me, you know, remember, you are, you are reciting a dream. You don't know how to tell this man that you've dreamt this beautiful dream and he's pulling it out of you and you're not going to scream it you know how would you tell a person a dream how would you tell your child what you have dreamed about and I sat on the stage and I just closed my eyes and I start the music start flowing and I just was having I don't know how it happened that's one of those things that you don't can't you can't explain it to people and I just let the voice flow and I I hit the right color for that show and everybody I, I, I didn't open my eyes for the whole first verse of the Morgen uh, Leuchtend and the people told me that the first thing Maestro Tillemann looked up and he just dived down with the orchestra I couldn't hear the orchestra that's how soft they played and I was just matching up with that and it was the most amazing experience I mean that was um I, I always try to get to that point again. But, you know, sometimes it happens and sometimes you don't know how you did it and then, you, then you're working your butt off to just to get to that point again. But, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, is also in Lohengrin, I feel also in Otello, people came up to me and said, is there something wrong with your voice? I said, no, why? Yeah, but it doesn't sound like Otello. I said, well, that's how it should sound. Because people don't understand really the dynamics what's the, in the, the score yeah. because they're going from other performances yeah. and recordings they've yeah. heard yeah. that don't follow so faithfully. Exactly. You should go and have a look at the music. And if you look at the orchestra score, uh, 80% of Otello, 80% of Lohengrin is written in pianissimo. All right? Now, I don't know why my colleagues can't do it. Uh, it's, I think it's have to do with training also uh, and the way... People have trained through the history of opera. Um, but when you can do it, it sounds so different. I mean, it sounds completely different. I listened to it my first time on a recording and I thought, uh -huh, uh -huh, does it really sound like that? You know, 
even I was surprised by it, by the sound of it. And uh, of course, I try to do it, and people should don't think I have voice problems. No, I haven't. Uh, I just do what the composer wants me to do. I'm singing it softly. Uh, it's not that easy. I mean, it's hard work. It's it's harder to sing pianissimo than to have to just to open up and sing, you know, sing loud. Is it more vocally healthy? Well, yes, because you, uh, if you write, if you, if, if you sing it, the right dynamics of the piece, it becomes somehow more easier to sing the piece. Strangely enough, um, that's how I feel. That's how, how that's how it works for me. Uh, that's how I, that's the reason why I can pace myself through these operas, uh, Wagner operas, without really having running into troubles because I knew I take the points where I have to sing softly, I do it. Although it's it's harder to do it, it's easier to just let it rip. But you know what's the use of it? You're going to let it rip and going to let it rip, and then at the end of the show, uh, you're going to have no voice left. You know, so. My intention of singing is to see, all right, this is pianissimo, so why should I sing it louder? It's only the strings that go complimenting with mein liebe Schwan, all right, or nun sei bedankt mein liebe Schwan. The rest of the piece, again, it's, if you listen to the orchestra, the accompaniment of the orchestra, it is not that thick as it is like in the... In, in those huge interludes before the chorus comes in, where the chorus goes, you can hear that the orchestra getting more thicker and the, there's more body to the orchestra. Whereas if you're in the Brautgemacht, it is woodwinds that, uh, uh, you know, uh, plays with you. So, and the rest of the orchestra so too. And that's the most exciting thing. I mean, if you listen to the real sound of that orchestra, if they play the right dynamics and the people are singing the right dynamics, it's a complete different show. It's a very ethereal-sounding score, very otherworldly in many places. Yes. And your character, Lohengrin, in, in a certain sense, he comes from a different world. He's from the community of the Grail he doesn't divulge his true identity until he's forced to near the end of the opera. Uh, do you try and bring more humanity to this role so that people in the audience, you know, can recognize this person? Or is he really otherworldly? Well, it all, def- uh, it all depends on what you define as the grail. What do you think is the grail? What is the grail? Where is the grail? It's an ideology of uh, Europe where the, and of Christianity or a lot of, of people that there is something like that that exists. Uh, nobody will be able to tell. Everybody is still hunting for the grail, as if we speak of today. Um, the grail, yes, Lundgren is a person. Um, if you have to go and look also into the history of Richard Wagner himself, um, he was a man that, all, in his time, when he started composing music, it was so revolutionary, the way he composed music, that people didn't like it at first. And people were taken aback by it at first. At first. And I was speaking yesterday to my uh, colleague, who's uh, my cover colleague, uh, Richard Crawley. Um, we were dis- having an, a, a discussion on uh, Richard Wagner himself and the way he's composed this music. 
And, you know, it's, if you listen to Verdi, it's beautiful music, you love the music, you sing the tune, and that's it. But if you start listening to Wagner, uh, it's like a bug that's going, getting under, under your skin and it doesn't leave you. It doesn't leave you. It's always going and going and going and going until the point that you're nearly getting insane about it. All right? And I think if you listen to Richard Wagner, the way he took the music, everybody has, every person, every character has his own leitmotif. All right? We call it a leitmotif or a, or a certain melody in the, in the orchestra. And he wove those music so together that it forms a unity and you can't really take it apart from each other. You know, the only opera that still f is like an Italian opera is Tannhäuser. That's the only opera where you have a set area, a lot of re uh, recitativo and stuff like that. But his later works is so intrigued. If you go to Tristan, I mean, there's no point where you can say, all right, this is now the aria of Tristan. It's impossible. And that's what's making him so amazing of trying to do it. But to come back to Lundgren, yes, in this production, um, Mr. Nijinsky came to me and said, you know, we've done this now. That's, he's coming from the grail and he's this God figure and everything. But let's portray this man also as a human being. He's coming from the first time from an environment where he's only among men, all right? He's with his knights in his knighthood of the grail. He comes to this point, he has to fight for a woman. Uh, he saw her and he is love at first sight. All right? He's falling madly in love with this woman. But there's also certain rules that he has to obey on. He has to tell her that she's not allowed to ask his name. Why? Because that's what he explained in the Graals at Salem. I am from the grail. And if somebody knows me, I have to go because I lose all my power. Okay? So why does he tell it not to ask his name? Because he knows he has to fight Telramund. He knows he has to fight evil. And evil is ordered in Telramund. All right? And that's the thing for uh, also from Lohengrin. When the swan is coming, he said, the swan is, the, the Graal is sending for me because I'm staying too long. I should have been gone already, all right? But he's madly in love with this woman. And I, I think that's what we're trying to bring to the audience this time is that he is in love with Elsa. They are, two, are both in love. The only problem is, is the question, you know? And she did, she have to ask the question. I mean, every woman in the world will ask that question because... <laughs> um, Knowing the curiosity of women, um, even my wife, um, that will kill them in the end if they haven't, if they don't ask the question, you know, and that's the tragedy tragedy of this of this person that in the end she did have to ask that question because if she don't, I think Lundgren himself he knows also that if she doesn't ask that question, they would never be actually happy together. A Although few, he would love that to work out, you know. A few years ago, <clears throat> speaking of what the Grail actually is, I saw the Schlingensief production of Parsifal yeah. at Bayreuth, in which 
I didn't even figure out at first. I took uh, speaking to a couple of cast members. I said, what exactly is the grail in this production? And it turns out that it's a rabbit in that particular production. What is, is there a, a vision of what the grail actually is in this production? Well, in this production, it is, um, you know, it's a classical form of what everybody believes that this is the, the, he's also saying it, there's a, there's a castle, Monsalvat, and uh, in that castle, there's a, a, there's a chalice, there's this wonderful cup, and the, according to the tradition and to the uh, what the you know and the mythology that was the cup that uh, Joseph of Arimathea took to catch the blood of Jesus when the Roman soldier passed his side with a spear and even the spear was sign, was the sign or was taken as this part of the holy grail right uh, and then this whole thing started uh, while people running or looking for it. The, the, so the person who have that will have internal, eternal life, you know, will never die or something like that. And that's the whole mythology. That's the mythology part of it. Um, the grail for me is, I think, for every Christian should be actually the birth of Jesus Christ himself um, who came to this world to save all people from, you know, from sin. And that's what the grail is for me as a, as a Christian, as a human being. Then we all know the Da Vinci Code, uh, the famous movie, about their explanation of what the grail should supposed to be. Uh, there's a lot of speculation, you know. I think the grail is what people want, uh, people who would want it. They, they can make their own idea of what the grail is supposed to be. Nobody knows what it is. I don't think ever, ever anybody will know about it. Parsifal is, again, it's the Parsifal, if you really do the production as Richard Wagner wants it, it is this about this chalice, this cup, and this spear that have been lost by Klingsor in a fight with Klingsor. And that's why uh, it's going so bad with the people in the, in the, in the Montsalvat. And that's why Parsifal came and saved you know, take the, the the spear and bring the spear back because he's the only stupid fool who can fight um, Klingzor. So that's why he's bring that's the whole grail for them, for Wagner, the whole grail mythology was his urge and looking for uh, redemption for the people would accept him for what he was and for the composer he was. And for the music, and I think that part of his redemption came uh, with the King Ludwig, who started sponsoring him and giving him the money to bring up to build Bayreuth, uh, at the theater in Bayreuth, and to let him do his operas. I think that's what the whole thing for Wagner was. The symbolism of the Grail seems to have resonance for you as a person of faith. Then, is this something that you think about? Uh, and that you feel as you're doing a role such as Lohengrin? Of course you feel that because, you know, the whole piece is uh, he comes to save somebody from turmoil. I mean, she prays to God, please send me somebody to help me out of the situation, and he does. He sent her the, uh, 
I won't say it's God who sent the, uh, me as the knight, but you can see that way also. I think and that was the whole thing also uh, what Wagner tried to do. I don't know why. You know, um, you can only get so clever out of the letters he had written to Franz Liszt. Um, his whole ideology was that it came basically from that myth of the grail, which the everybody was hunting now. I mean, you, the, a lot of movies have been made of it. Uh, Indiana Jones, the Da Vinci Code, uh, even Hitler sent his people into looking for it. I mean, everybody was still looking for the Holy Grail. So my question is to everybody, what is the Holy Grail is what it is? What do you think? What do you define it? How do you define it as what it is? Where does it come from? Nobody knows where it comes from. He comes, the most amazing thing is Wagner described this man as coming, uh, being pulled on a, uh, on a boat. He's coming on a boat and he's been pulled by a swan. Now, if you took two, put two and two together, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if it's possible for a swan to even pull the boat with a man with a whole... <laughs> suit of armor. <laughs> with a suit of armor, a big sword, and it's a lot of stuff, all right? Uh, three swans, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know, it's... Uh, it's the thing that, you know, you, you will never know. I mean, that's the thing that well, uh, I think if one would be able to be speaking to Wagner himself, Richard Wagner, and if he thought he would explain to you the, well, his whole idea about it. I mean, I think that would have been fantastic if everybody could have had that experience. But it's like with Meisterzinger or with Otello, you know, uh, Verdi, when he did the Otello, he took the Shakespearean drama. You can read the rest of the drama. You can go with Shakespeare. You, and you, you understand it completely and it makes sense, all right? A lot of the stuff that Verdi and Puccini have done makes sense. If you look at Wagner, it doesn't make sense. And that's the intriguing part of it. I mean, that's what I said. That's the bug that bites you and it never leaves you. Because you always found, you look at the score and you find something new and you go like, hang on, okay. I have to think about this this way, or perhaps trying this out, you know? And I think that's the, why a lot of producers are having also problems with this piece, how to stage it, because mm, most of the productions I've done was classical productions that you come in, you stand, and you sing. There's no lot, a lot of movement in it because it's a chorus piece. But to let all that chorus is moving around, is going to be so much, un, you know, disturbing on the stage that you can't do it. So it is like the whole thing is basically set in the early version of going to court. You know, the, the judge is the king, the jury is the chorus, and Telramund is making his accusations, and the jury have to decide who's guilty, all right? And Lerngrens comes in and he just, he saves the day by telling her, uh, or he's the witness that comes in and says that she's not guilty. Okay. So that's the whole thing. Now, how do you stage that? You can't run around in the court situation either, you know. 
And if you look at the kings and the way the, the court system was at that stage is of the kings, even today, if you go to the, the castles of the kings, uh, if they have an audience, people is not moving that much around. I mean, it's a very static thing. The king will listen to what you have to say. If he likes what you say, you're happy. If not, you lose your head, you know. That was, that's how it was in those days. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of producers are having a lot of trouble in staging it. At this staging, uh, in this production, we try to bring the character Lundgren. He's, he's a young man coming from the Grail. This is his first mission. He's supposed to tell her, listen, I'm not allowed to, you're not allowed to know my name. I'll fight for you. I win the battle. But then, you know, I don't think he's even allowed to marry her. He should go to, you have to go and fight the battle and then get away, all right? He goes a step further. He's falling in love with this woman because it's the first time he encounters something like that. He encounters love. He doesn't know what to do with it. I mean, he's like a, that's why the Brautgemacht is like it is. Um, the two of them don't know what to do with each other. You know, she's first time she's alone with a man and he's alone with a woman and the only thing they can do is talk about it <laughs> and that's the whole thing and that's the tragedy of this piece you've been listening to backstage at lyric the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at lyric opera of chicago for additional interactive content and to order tickets visit us online at lyricopera.org <laughs>